I want to read you a verse from John chapter 4 and verse 14, which kind of puts into context, I think, some of the journey that we've been going on over these past few weeks with Peter. Uh, and that's if you're joining us for the first time, that's where we've been. We've been following the story of Peter around the Easter time. Earlier on in John in chapter 4, verse 14, we read this. Jesus is speaking to a woman who is in, I guess, really quite a desperate state in life. She's in a, she's in a tough place. And Jesus says to her this, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. That's what Jesus says to somebody whose life experience at that moment in time was desperate, was fearful, was probably troubled for the future, was confused, anxious, lonely, and rejected. We capture all of those experiences and we say, Jesus said to this woman, the water that I give you can do this inside of you. It can build you, it can nourish you, you'll never need to come back, but it will take you to eternal life. I just want to ask the question as we, as we start this, look at the final chapter actually in John chapter 21. That hope-filled message given to woman in desperate need is, is wonderful. But at the same time, I think for many of us on a day-to-day -day reality basis, it's very hard for us to appropriate that for ourselves. It's very hard for us to take those words and say, this is for me. I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to, I'm going to drink on the living water of Jesus and know today that all of those experiences that are fearful challenging, difficult, awful, are resolved in Jesus. So how does today's text help us? Today's text, John chapter 21, although we, we helpfully started in chapter 20, speaks about the resurrection of Jesus. It's a moment in history. It's, it's a world-turning moment in history. If we, if we come to terms with the impact, the implications of the resurrection of Jesus, the implications, think about this, somebody dying and then rising again from the dead and living eternally. That's the claim of the Bible. If one person in all of human history, has achieved that, then the whole of our lens on life needs to change. Everything needs to change. I think there's three things that we can see. I think we can see this. We can see how we can be sure from this text that the resurrection is historically true. It's the first thing we can see. Second thing we can see is this. So we're able to see why the resurrection communicates to us 
the greatest love we can ever know. And thirdly, we can see that the resurrection frees us to the joy of an ordinary life. Three things. First thing is this. We see how we can be sure that the resurrection is historically true. Now let's just hit this one head on. We are, as far as we're concerned, way, way more sophisticated than first century ancient world people. You would, we might say, well, they, they lived in a whole other world which believed all of those kind of ideas and thoughts. But, but we've moved on. And so we come to this particular bit of the Bible and we say, well, that's really interesting. But I can't really truly believe that what we read about Jesus dying, being placed in a tomb, rising again, can truly be the experience that we can know to be true. Because that's what we see here. Right at the very beginning, we see that the disciples are out, up at Galilee, and you know, Peter emerges, and, as the typical Peter, and they go fishing. And then in the morning, we see that Jesus appears to them. It's a living person. They meet him, they talk to him, they eat with him. That's the, that's the simple narrative. Jesus appears to them, they talk to him, they eat with him, they spend time with him. I think there's three ways that we might interpret the idea of the resurrection. One way is that we might consider it to be just a symbolic idea. That's one of the arguments that many people might say. You know, the resurrection, well, we're so much further down the line now in our thinking. We can, we can hold on to the idea of the resurrection, but the idea of the resurrection is it's like a symbol of hope. It's like a symbol of something that we can hold on to. And we can say, it's great to hold on to the idea of the symbol of resurrection. But I can't truly believe that 2,000 years ago somebody came out of a tomb. <laughs> I think that's, that's a kind of way that we can be sophisticated. What we're saying is, yeah, they might have used that as a kind of picture. Here's the thing. In actual fact, we see it in this text, right at the very end of the text. We, we read this. In verse 18. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, Jesus speaking to Peter, you dressed yourself, went where you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Symbolic. What, what we have to believe, if we want to hold on to the idea that it's symbolic, 
is that all of the disciples and hundreds and ultimately thousands of the followers of Jesus who were witnesses of the resurrected Jesus were willing to die. They were willing to die not for a cause or an idea or a symbol. They were willing to die because they truly believed that Jesus had physically risen from the dead. This text demands that we look into the, into, the, into the eyes of that claim and say what we have to believe is that Peter was willing to be stretched out, as we see here, his hands on a cross, nailed to a cross, legend, tradition, various historical records suggest that Peter insisted that he be crucified upside down so that he would not be given the representation of, the, of Christ on the cross. He, he kind of said, I believe so much that Jesus rose from the dead. You can nail me to a cross, but don't make me look like him, my Savior and my King. A symbol? We might say that the whole of the idea of the resurrection is a fiction. It's the idea, and, and this is so, so powerful for us today. It's, the, it's an idea like this, which says that, and if I say this with all of our kind of media awareness today, we might say, as long as you say something often enough, it becomes the truth. There's nothing that is more relevant for us today. As long as you keep on saying this particular truth, we've lost the idea of truth, but we're, we're actually asking the question of truth here. As long as you say it enough, it becomes true. Let me read you this. I'm so thankful, by the way, to Tim Keller for some insights on this. Second century writer, Celsus who was rejecting the idea of Christianity. And he was writing backwards and forwards with a, a, an early Christian theologian called Origen. Celsus says this, Christianity can't be true. Are you ready? Hold on to your seats. It can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know women are hysterical. Can I just make sure you know that I'm reading what Celsus wrote? But, but hang on a sec. He's writing something incredibly important there if we want to argue that the whole of the Christian story is a fiction. One of the things that God, in his astounding, unbelievable, incredible wisdom, chooses to use the very people whose testimony would not stand up 
in a court of law, women to be the first witnesses. See how important that is? If you're going to write a fiction in the first century, something that you want people to believe, you write it in a way which would be, in a contemporary sense, credible. That's what, that's what our alternative truths are today. They're written in a way which is contemporary credible. And yet the witnesses of the New Testament to the resurrection of Jesus, the women who saw Jesus and became the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection are precisely the people that you would never use if you were writing a fiction. It's amazing. It's beautiful. That actually those things that detract in contemporary terms from the true resurrection of Jesus are precisely those things that point to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Thirdly, we might say it's some sort of spiritual resurrection. Some sort of apparition. And yet here we see Jesus who sits on the banks of the Sea of Galilee with his disciples and he cooks fish, he breaks bread, and he eats it. That's what we see him doing. It's not some sort of spectre, some sort of spiritual vision. What this tells us, what this speaks to you and me is this. That the truth of the resurrection of Jesus claims to be a historical fact which demands that we believe that Jesus is a physical, resurrected body. We see that we can be sure that the resurrection is historically true from this text. Next we can see why the resurrection communicates the greatest love we can ever know. I only really noticed this in preparing for this, this, this talk for this afternoon. John chapter 21 and verse 5, we read this. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No. It's a moment of recognition around that point where they realize who it is who's shouting to them from the shore. Look at what we see in verse 7. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, that's John, the writer of the book, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water, swam to shore. There's a moment of recognition. Jesus is talking to them, and they don't recognize him, then they recognize him. It's a turning point. But there is the most astounding, beautiful circularity and completion to the story of Peter in that moment. Where does Jesus first see Peter? Mark chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17 says this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. 
Come follow me, Jesus said. And I will send you out to fish for people. In the story of Peter, this, this is the bookend. From the, the bookend at the beginning. In terms of his, his relationship with Jesus in this world, it starts and finishes with Peter fishing in Galilee. At the point where Jesus at the beginning says to Peter, come on, follow me, let's go and fish for people. And it, Peter thinks it's all fallen apart. It's all completely fallen apart because Jesus has been killed and back to my fishing job. Jesus calls him again. From exactly the same place. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if Peter was on exactly the same few meters worth of water, maybe in the same boat, casting the same net as the moment when Jesus first called him and he calls him again. And he says, you know that task of fishing for people? You thought it had ended? It's only just beginning. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful that Jesus is willing to take the time with Peter to complete the story and start him again? Why is that so amazingly beautiful? Because the last time we saw Peter, he was denying Jesus on three occasions. And we see later on in the chapter, we see in verse 15 through to 18, we see how Jesus gives Peter the opportunity, if you like, to reaffirm himself in spite of those denials with curses. I don't know him. Peter, it starts again. We often, you know, we often think that the affirmation for Peter is the moment where the love can start again. As though Peter's three denials are counterbalanced by the three affirmations that Peter gives. As though he can now start again. The love of Jesus is way bigger than that. Way bigger than that. The love of Jesus for you, when you've denied, is way bigger than the idea that you can come back and go through a gateway where you show the pass of saying I'm sorry and I love you and it can all start again. Jesus loves Peter and embraces Peter, spiritually speaking, and has already restored Peter, spiritually speaking, way before Peter restores himself with three affirmations. How do we know this? Because of the witness of women. Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter 16 and verse 7. The risen Jesus appears to the women, and, and they say, Jesus says to them this, Go tell his disciples, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, there you will see him, just as he told you. He says that, 
go to Galilee, which is why the disciples are at Galilee. But he adds something to the beginning. Go tell his disciples and Peter, go to Galilee. That is the most breathtaking, remarkable two words, and Peter. Why? Well, Peter was a disciple, wasn't he? Jesus says, go and tell the disciples to go to Galilee. And then he says, go and tell the disciples and Peter to go to Galilee. Why? Because Peter sits there listening to that from the women and thinks that applies to all of them. That applies to all of those good disciples go to Galilee. But it can't, it can't apply to me. It can't apply to me because of where I've been. I've been the one terrified by a servant girl. I've been the one cursing and denying Jesus. And yet Jesus makes a point to Peter, effectively through those words, tell the disciples and Peter, the love applies to you. How do you feel? Do you believe in Jesus and hold on to your faith in Jesus? Are you looking at this idea of faith in Jesus and thinking, I can't sustain that. Can't keep it going. Sit alongside Peter, who couldn't keep it going either. He just couldn't keep it going. He couldn't sustain it. And know this, the greatest love that you can ever experience is found in Jesus. Because before you're even on the way back to affirm again your hope in Jesus, He already loves you. He already says, it's okay. <laughs> you know one of the most powerful occasions in the ancient world was to eat with someone. It's a way to say, you're my friend. I believe in our friendship. We are deeply related. We are intimately related. Eating is just, you know, 21st century Western world, a lot of eating is just fueling, isn't it? It's just fueling ourselves. In the ancient world, eating together was a way of expressing relationship. Jesus had already prepared the meal. There was already fish cooked. There was already bread there. And then, remarkably, do you see what he says? He says, and you bring some fish as well. Come and join the meal with me. Come and celebrate mutually our relationship. This text tells us this, that the resurrection of Jesus assures us that the love of Jesus for you and me is the greatest love that we can ever know. Thirdly, we see that the resurrection frees us to a joy of an ordinary life. <laughs> what does Jesus do? Why is this so powerful? 
He eats again. He eats again. How ordinary is eating? The simple act of Jesus eating again liberates us. If we can truly believe that there's another life beyond this life, how often do you feel as though you've got to live this life, as though you've got to complete everything, so you've got to do it well? I've got to achieve this, I've got to achieve that, I've got to make my life worthwhile. I want a satisfied life. I want to get to my deathbed and be able to say I can look back and life, I've done it well. If you take Jesus, the end of it says he didn't do it well. He died at about 33. He never achieved anything in terms of wealth Prosperity, longevity, family, all of those things that we look at in terms of our human identity and we say that's what it is to live a satisfied and fulfilled life. Got to get to, get to, get to life and make it good. And Jesus says, I'll eat again. And it carries on forever. There's no end to the satisfaction of life. There's a philosophy, a Greek philosophy, when we try to understand how to make life worthwhile. Greek philosopher said this, a society grows great. A Greek philosopher, some of you will twig this straight away. A society grows great when old men plant trees in whose shade they never sit. It's a beautiful little phrase, isn't it? It kind of says this, and for those of you who are smiling, you'll recognize that, because Anne says it in afterlife, sat on the bench. It's actually at the core of Ricky Gervais' philosophy of life. To make life worthwhile... Let's do good, even though we die and disappear, at least for the next generation. That's the idea of that philosophy. A society grows great when old men plant trees in whose shade they may never sit. It's filled with a purpose. Yes, it's filled with a purpose. It kind of gets there, but it leaves us dissatisfied. I don't know whether he knew it, but Martin Luther said this, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Do you know what I think Luther understood? The things that we pursue in this world the good things that we pursue in this world, we will see the fulfillment of them in an eternal physical life. An eternal physical life. I think Luther was saying kind of like, I know that the Greek philosopher says, grow a tree for the shade of somebody in the future. I think Luther was saying, do you know what? I'm going to eat the apples. 
If the world goes to pieces tomorrow, if I die tomorrow, I'm going to eat the apples. I'll still plant my tree. Our liberation to live an ordinary life, to pursue without the prospect of failure crushing us, is secured in the greatest love that we can ever experience in the resurrected Jesus, which has a foundation on the truth that he historically rose again. I'll do it. Somebody, um, one of our guys, some of you will know about ChatGPT. And some people are terrified about AI. What's the world going to come to with AI? One of our guys asked ChatGPT this. Write a poem on Good Friday in the style of Tolkien. Listen to this. In Middle Earth on this dark day, the star skies above are gloomy and grey, and as all remember the sacrifice made when the King of Kings on the cross was laid, he bore the weight of all our sin and suffered greatly for our kin. His love for us he did impart as he gave up his very heart. On Calvary the battle raged, and evil thought it had engaged, but little did it know the plan that would defeat it in this land. For on the third day he did arise, with victory gleaming in his eyes, and death and sin were put to flight by the power of the one, the light. So let us remember on this day the hope and love that came our way, and as we journey through this life, may we live as those redeemed by strife. For on this Good Friday we see the truth of the ancient prophecy that through the death of one so great, we can live forever a life so straight. And so we give thanks and we sing to the King of Kings who gave us everything and we look forward to the day when we'll see Him face to face and say, Hail, King of Kings, our Saviour true. Our love for you will forever renew. On this Good Friday we remember your love for us, which lasts forever. That is written by a senseless computer. In 10 seconds. In 10 seconds from one line. But here's the thing. What will last forever is when our hearts resonate and applaud and rejoice and sing hallelujah to that truth. And that's the difference that's why we are who we are. It's why we are truly human with an eternal which is greater than silicon chips and electrons bouncing around a circuit board. It's when our hearts resonate that we can rejoice in a Savior who lives.